Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the 12th of our weekly podcast of Practice Managers. This is a recording of the webinar run on Wednesday the 17th of June. So, um, I think um, we are still predicting a second peak around September, October. So we must never forget that because um, it means that how you know how quickly you set up your hot and cold sites, um, you you'll be even slicker this time if it happens. Let's hope it doesn't. But if it does, um, you know we need to make sure that we don't step them down to such an extent that we can't um, resurrect them. Now, of course, that also means the hospitals are doing the same, but the hospitals are telling us that they are likely to have a third less beds than they have been having because of social distancing. We don't know if that two metre rule is going to be reduced in this country. And even if it does, we don't know if that will apply to hospitals where they will have people um, infected and possibly um, symptomatic. So the worry is, of course, that if the hospitals are saying, well, we can't do this and we can't do that because of social distancing, it's going to affect um, outpatients. It's going to affect inpatients. If the hospitals start to say to primary care, actually, can you work this one up for us, please, before they come in? Can you take all these bloods? Can you check this? Can you check that? We need to know about it because obviously you are busy enough. You've got enough to do. You're trying to get back to some sort of normality. We can't um, take on secondary care's problems in primary care. You know that. I know that. Just don't get caught. Don't get don't get sucked in and, and come to us and we will um, make sure that, that we have those conversations with the commissioners and with the acutes. OK, um, um, I'm going to do the easy stuff first before I do face masks. <laughs> so so um, just a couple of updates, really. Um, those of you in NHSPS um, buildings, uh, the BMA court case against NHSPS is still ongoing. It was going to be held virtually. Um, they've decided now they might need to do a bit more investigation. It's on hold at the moment. So any of you in those buildings, carry on doing what you do in terms of paying your historical amounts, all the rent, historical service charges, and we'll get back to as soon as we can. But the other thing, um, the GPC has been negotiating with um, PCSE is that deceased patient records having to be printed off because that's what it says in the regulation and PCSE not being able to accept anything either electronically or on disk because they don't have the equipment. That is a priority for PCSE this year. We are very hopeful that within the year you will no longer have to print off deceased patient records, that there will be a mechanism that um, PCSE will be able to use either just uh, download online or whatever. Hopefully that will also stop all of the patients and relatives coming back to you and saying, I've been applying for my father's record, my mother's record, PCSE say they haven't got it or they've only got this little bit and it's illegible, et cetera, et cetera. That should uh, negate all of that. So that is good news. The other thing with PCSC, I think, um, as you know, we used to have engagement managers that we could deal with. And when you came to us and said there's a problem with a pension or a problem with the performers or this or that, we had um, individual people that we could go to and they worked 
purely helping LMCs um, to help you. And um, in their restructure, those posts disappeared. We asked the GPC to, and, and said, this is vital. We, we must have an escalation process. Um, PCSE has agreed to reinstate a process for us. We don't know what it is yet. We haven't been given any names yet, but at least we will get around the portal. You continue to send your queries and get your CAS references. Without a CAS reference, it's really difficult for us to help you. So keep doing that, keep getting those, and then let us know. A couple of um, not very nice things there. Um, I think everybody's talked about this, the, the amount of fraud that is um, occurring during um, this pandemic. People have been or tried to be scammed for all sorts of things. There are two we are particularly aware of. One is our beloved healthcare computing. And um, apparently emails are going out as if from HCC and they are very genuinely. And it says, we need to renew your password. Please click here if you want to keep your current password. Please don't click. It's, it's a scam. HCC would never ask you to do that. So please make sure all your teams are aware of that. And the other one is from a company called Medical Supplies, um, and they are sending out invoices um, saying that you've received medical supplies from them and please pay. That is another one. That's gone on the fraud um, uh, template newsletter, um, but we just thought we'd raise it here to make sure you're aware. And quite frankly, just tell everybody to be on high alert because fraud and, and scams are just rife at the moment. Um Next thing, I suppose, I'll talk about face masks, and then and then we'll um, and then we'll move on to somebody else. So, always, 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 primary care is the poor relation, aren't we? We are the Cinderella service. There is nothing mandatory in primary care that says anybody has to wear a face mask or a face covering. And I know we've had a question about what what's the difference. So face masks should be worn by clinicians to protect themselves from whatever a patient might be presenting with, whether that's a proper surgical face mask if, if they're symptomatic or an ordinary face mask if they're not, but they should be wearing face masks to protect themselves. Face coverings are used more or less to protect the person um, who you're seeing from coughing all over you. It keeps it inside and gives it back to them. That's a face covering. Face coverings, you can ask people to wear them. Age group-wise, we know on transport, they've said it's age 11. And of course, of course there are some um, exceptions and, the, and we have got some letters that you can use um, to, to prevent you getting bombarded with this. Um, in hospitals, it's children under the age of three that is the actual cutoff um, point. Now, we're never going to get some children, even three-year-olds, four-year-olds, to wear masks and keep them on. Um, all you can do is do your best, you know, weigh up the pros and cons. If they're coming in for an immunisation or vaccination, actually, they're more at risk if you don't give it than you are by... Um, 
you know, them not wearing a face covering. So I think, you know, we 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 have to take a pragmatic approach. Um, we have to do what we think is best. And, um, you know, where you can get people to wear masks or coverings, then do so. But there is nothing mandatory about it. Dawn, have I covered um, what people have asked? There are still a couple of other areas. Um, the difference between COVID-19 secure and non-secure areas. Um, I understand a secure area is to be an area where you are able to maintain a two metre distance, where you've adequate hand hygiene measures, uh, such as hand gel, um, i.e. an admin room, but a COVID-19 non-secure area may be the corridor walking to the toilet if a patient passes through. Yeah, and I think this is a real difficult one for primary care because you may have staff that work on their own in, in an admin office and therefore they don't need to wear a mask. Um, but if they then get up to go to the kitchen to make a drink or go to the toilet or walk through any sort of other area, they should be wearing a mask. We're being asked, is it safe for somebody that's wearing a mask to drop the mask down, drink put the mask back. The scientists cannot agree on this. It is completely um, outside of any knowledge that anybody appears to have. The optimum, of course, would be the minute you take that down, it becomes contaminated, chuck it, get another one. We know even in hospitals that the masks are coming off, being put in a pocket, and then being put back on when they go back into a patient-facing situation. We can't advise you, I'm so sorry. There is nothing absolutely clear on that. If things do get better, if we do get more clarity, absolutely, we'll, we'll get it back to you. But at the moment, I'm afraid you have to risk assess for yourselves and do what's best in, in, your, in your areas. Um, There's one other question, Carol, as well, um, around the... Sorry. I just wonder if it's what I mean, we, you mentioned it, Carol, social distancing is equally as important as face masks for your staff. So I think it's just bearing in mind that having social distancing does really help. Um, and yeah, and just to keep it in mind. Yeah. OK. And in fact, on, on that one, Michelle, um, we, we're seeing examples of how um, practices are trying to um, manage so that if they do get any sort of, you know, um, test and, and trace type thing or, or they get alerted that within a practice, they, they're breaking into smaller teams so that if anybody is contacted to say, you, you know, you've been in contact with somebody, um, you need to self-isolate. That whole team has to self-isolate rather than the whole practice. And we do know that there are some anomalies around that. I mean, there's this business around 15 minutes, so it doesn't matter if you're just walking past them. Um, if you've been sat in a waiting room with somebody else, yeah, you're likely to have to self-isolate. It, it, it's all very fluid at the moment, and, and all we can do is, is, is to just... You know, if you get a specific incident, come and talk to us and, and we'll see what we can find out for you. But it's all very, very fluid at the moment. Um, I'm actually going to hand over to Michelle now. Um, Michelle's going to talk to you a little bit about an update on shielding, something around child IMS, and a bit around flu. Thanks, Michelle. 
No problem. I'll start with shielding. So we're all aware that the deadline of the 30th of June is fast approaching of when patients um, need to shield up to. Um, we are also aware that there is a review taking place this week. So it's hopeful that there will be further guidance coming out to everyone around shielding patients at some point this week, which we all um, await with interest. The other thing I think just to mention on shielding is there's a really good document, which clearly will need to be updated depending on the outcome of the, the review from the Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health, specifically for children who are shielding. And it takes all the various conditions and provides a, um, some guidance on what they need to do. We are going, it is quite a long document, so I think we are going to do a summary, which we might pause whilst the the update happens this week and then put further guidance out. But it's a good document just to have a look at. Um, and once we've done, once the update's out, we will um, provide a summary and it'll be on our website. So childhood IMS. So it's really just a reminder to practices to make sure that you are submitting the pieces of information that um, enable you to receive your target payments. So we are aware that there's a recent case, I think it's gone to litigation, the litigation authority. Um, and unfortunately, it hasn't ruled in the, in, in the practice's favour. So it's really just a reminder to um, check your receiving payments. So there's two, I believe there's two ways of uh, uploading the information. One is through CHIS and the other is via the Open Exeter. And it's really important that you make sure that you do both of those. So we would suggest that you have a look at um, your open extra statements and make sure you're receiving payments. The difficulty we have is the SFE enables public health to um, suggest or to, to implement that you have to have uploaded your information within four months of the end of the quarter. And if you haven't, then they have the SFE to say they're not going to pay you. And they are being quite strict within the areas that we are working in. So it's really just to prompt you just to double check that. It's worth just making sure you're getting the payments that you should be. I think the only other thing just to mention is that when you're in OpenExter, we believe that the submit button when you press it, or if you haven't pressed it and you come out of that screen, it doesn't remind you that you haven't pressed submit. And the reason for that is because when you, you can upload information throughout the month, but you might not want to submit till the end of the month. So you don't get any um, any warning that you haven't submitted your information. So it's it's we can see how it could happen that you don't submit it in time. So really, just it's just a reminder to go and check what you're if you're receiving all the payments that you should. Um, finally, just wanted to talk a bit about flu. Um, this is quite a topical subject at the moment. So every year we always provide practices with a document that draws in all of the guidance documents that are out there on flu vaccinations. We usually do a podcast. Uh, I know Helene, myself and Dawn did it last year. Um, and we are planning to do that again. However, we recognise that the flu season for this year is going to be different and quite um, challenging to implement. So we are looking at different models that are going to potentially be out there. Um, and we started looking at that. So we will keep you updated as to all the information that we've got available. I think that's all I needed to say. Thank you, Michelle. Um, we've got quite a few questions coming in. I wonder if we can do a couple of those. Um, I'm not sure if Giselle can let me know if Helene has uh, managed to join us today. Um, so, Carol, is there more gui guidance around antibody testing for staff? We've been told by our CCG that we should be offering it to staff 
um, a few at a time. But there is confusion about how we do this, whether we register them as INT patients or direct the staff members to their own practice. Someone else put something very similar as well about the INT yeah. registration. So, so this, this, this was brought in without any thought whatsoever. Um, there you go. No change there then. But this is, this is purely for public health data. Now, I think we all would like to know where the hotspots are and so that we can gear up for, um, you know, that they're even looking at possible lockdown of individual cities, towns, villages even, if the data shows that, that there's the prevalence is rising. That is the only reason to do antibody testing. It does not provide you with any sort of degree of um, assurance around being immune. So even if you get a positive test, it doesn't mean to say that you can never get COVID again you've had it or whatever that's not there so that's out the way the second thing is this is something that's been requested and is being backed very heavily by nhs england so if you if you want to um, vaccinate your uh, sorry if you want to take blood tests from your staff and they are willing for you to do that you can do it you would register them as an immediately necessary treatment. Some areas have said temporary resident. That is so totally wrong. They, they are not TRs um, because they, they, they live where they live and they're registered with who they're registered with. So you can do it under an INT and that way, because the patient is registered with you, um, you know, the results can go to the labs and the labs will, at the moment, as we understand it, they will notify the patient who can then notify their own doctor. There's work going on to try and get the lab results directly into the patient's record, no matter who has actually ordered that. So you can do it. You can say to your staff, if you want the test, go to your own practice. We, we, we don't really feel we should do it. There is a real blurring of that thing between employer, employee. This is almost an occupational health service, and therefore it almost should be done by an occupational health service but it wasn't, there wasn't time enough to set that up. Um, so, so that's where we are. Do it if you want to do it under an INT. You know, if staff want it and you don't want to do it, they can go to their own practice and ask for it. Um, you are encouraged to do it um, so that public health get the data that they need because um, even the trials and things that are going on at the moment, there's so little COVID about, the trials are sort of um, being a bit stymied. So but that, that's the situation. You're not going to get into trouble for doing it um, and taking blood from your own staff. Um, it's entirely up to you, um, but there are different ways of doing it. Okay. I hope that answers the question. Okay, we've got another question Um Slightly different, well, very different subject now, deductions. Um, deductions on the eight-day rule, PCSE um, form says we can't deduct the child because of behaviour of parent, because it's the parent's behaviour when dealing with the practice about the child that has caused the removal. Our policy for safeguarding reasons is that the child can't be registered without a parent or guardian any way around this. Uh, is that is a really, really mm. difficult one because what's been quoted is absolutely accurate. You cannot remove another family member 
because of a different family member's behaviour, which is fine when it comes to spouses or other relatives. But when it comes to children, it is very, very difficult. And in fact, really needs a persuasion type arrangement to say, if, if, if you remove um, certainly a mum, um, you, you know, somehow the health visitor or somebody has to talk to that mum and say, look, it really is best if your child is registered at the same practice as you. Um, it's a difficult one, but those those are the rules. Unless, of course, there's a safeguarding issue. If there are any safeguarding issues, then the safeguarding leads should then talk to the parents and they should make sure the child is registered where the parents are, but particularly the mum. Okay. And I'm not sure if Helene has joined us today. Um, Hi, Helen, Helene, welcome. Hi. So here's, we have Helene um, Irvine, our nurse advisor, who I think has something to talk to us today about um, our operational document that's um, now on our website. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, you were probably aware that some time ago we produced, when sort of COVID started, a document to support and provide information for nurses around rag rating of patients during COVID-19. Obviously, things have moved on, um, as Carol has said, to the restore and restoration phase. Um, and in response, we have put together an operational document for practices. It covers a whole range um, of topics with various links and suggestions. Um, it's divided into three pillars. There's resource, training and service delivery. It is accessible on our web page. Dawn has very kindly put it on the front of our page with a star attached to it, actually. And obviously, do bear with us. It is a working document and things change overnight or as we speak, and we do our very best to update it. But please, obviously, double check the, the links and the information before you decide to um, put anything into practice. Um, one of the sections on there I just wanted to pick up actually was obviously we're, we're doing more around video consultations, non-line consultations, which is okay, but there will be certain people who can't access them or will have difficulty um, with a variety of disabilities, obviously, and that will include um, people with hearing loss, visual disabilities, and learning disabilities. And we have put a section on there um, specifically for those type of patients with um, some links. Uh, for example, the NHS have produced uh, are supporting a free sign language facility for those people who have um, who have problems with with, uh, with hearing. And um, it is accessible. We the only thing we're trying to do is we're trying to give real examples of where people have made changes, have been a bit innovative about doing things differently within that practice. We would really like to share with other people and um, you know what's worked well. And if you have any examples, we would be really really pleased if you could send them in to us so we could use those and update those onto uh, onto the working document. Um, it does change, obviously we haven't got a section at the moment about uh, face masks in practice which uh, Carol has been talking about. Um, there are a few questions I notice on the Q&A section and we will try and address those I think at the end of this session. Um, and we've done a bit about shielding the document that Michelle's talked about about children is also um, updated on the operational document. That's all I have to say. Thank you, Helene. Um, can I just say, can I just say, Dawn? Um, you know, when when we talk about things like operational documents, I mean, obviously, I can envisage it because I've seen it and about you know, um, you can dip in and out of it. 
at, at any time and at any point you need. So if you say to yourself or a nurse comes to you and says, should I be doing a spirometry review on this patient? You can go straight into the document to spirometry and it'll tell you exactly what should and shouldn't be done or, or, and what guidance there is, etc. Again, other areas, you know, what about, um, you know, COPD? You go in there, just look for it. So, so you can go dip in and out uh, it's all in alphabetical order isn't it now dawn and um <laughs> and uh, bless her um and so you know you can you can go in and just find the section you want don't feel the need that you have to read it all all the way through in one go it doesn't work like that okay thanks carol um michelle we do have um, a question on ims um i'm not sure if we can help at the moment. We've been informed that MSD are no longer able to supply the pneumococcal um, polysaccharide viral vaccine at a cost of £8.32. However, the only other vaccine available is Pneumovax, um, also from MSD, but that's at a much higher cost of £16.80. Unfortunately, we are unable to find any documents stating that if we purchase this, that it would be reimbursed by the PPSA. Do we have any documentation to support that? I think you're going to need to leave this with us because this is obviously the um, FP34 process. Um, From memory, I think you can, but I ju- we're going to need to go and double check that and we'll put the response in the FAQ. In the FAQs, that's yeah. lovely. Yeah, I think we should take it up with them, Michelle, because if you yeah. remember, this happened a few years ago with another vaccine and Public Health England would only pay the price that they had agreed earlier um, and said that they wouldn't pay the difference. Um, You know, and and I think we went head to head with them on that one and said, well, then we'll advise practice not to give the vaccine um, because what's the point, Um, you know, other than the fact that it's safer for patients. But, you know, we've we've got to make a stand somewhere. So, yeah, let's let's take it up. Yeah, we'll have a look at it and... um, We'll take it up with NHS England if we have to. And on that lovely topic of face masks, Carol, we do have a few more people have sent in some extra little questions. Um, If we can perhaps go back to some of those, I think we've got a little more time. Uh, Should face masks be worn by reception team members? So, again, it really depends on, on your social distancing. If... Um, you know, if you've got screens up, if you've got people stood back, um, you know, unfortunately, the practice I go to, most people are 112. So they're all deaf. So they all come right up to the counter. And therefore, the receptionists do wear masks. Um, so, again, it's, it, it's, it's what's your social distancing like? What's your other protection like? Is there anything um, that, that protects them? If not, yeah, I would say. I mean, I know when we were talking to Nigel this morning, Nigel was saying that it, they might just get away with a face covering rather than a mask, again, depending on what else you've got in situ and about social distancing. But, you know, you, you have a duty as an employer to protect your staff. So you need to risk assess and do whatever is, is, is appropriate. Okay. And one more on face masks then. Can you confirm um, whether a face covering is okay to wear when walking to the toilet or must we wear a surgical face mask? I think it, um, again, it depends on whether you're going through 
patient areas. If if you're completely in a in a sterile environment, it's just admin, maybe it's on a different floor to everywhere else, a face covering would be acceptable. If you are going to come into contact at all with patients, then it should be a mask. Okay. Um and I think probably we've we've answered this, but nevertheless, someone's just put it there. If we put a screen in between two members of staff because they cannot answer the phones with a mask on, um, can we claim for that? I think it's probably saying it, it sort of stops the typing there. Sorry. But they're asking, can they claim if they put a screen up? So yet again, we still still have not had uh, confirmation from the Treasury via the CCGs about what is being reimbursed. I, I'm aware that some CCGs have taken a pragmatic approach and they are reimbursing for screens. Screens aren't the be all and end all because obviously they get splattered and they have to be cleaned regularly. And um, but, but they're better than nothing, I would say. Um, I would say because our CCGs are all behaving slightly differently, I would say if you're going to go to the expense of putting screens up, I would go to your CCG first and say, actually, you know, if we need to do this because it's the only way we can protect our receptionists, um, this is what it's going to cost. Are you happy to uh, reimburse us either under the COVID fund or under the premises improvement grant situation? Maybe, maybe they could do it through premises. Sorry, it's not a great answer, but but they are all different. Okay, and somebody's asking the document that Helene has referred to. Um, what's it called, and where can we find it? I, I can help you with that one. It's on the home page. <laughs> it's on the home page. So if you just go to our home page, and on the left hand side, you'll see a little sort of black star that says new, um, and that's the operational guidance for. Uh, restoration and recovery and that's the document that Helene's been referring to today um okay well yes there's people putting in there that they've claimed for screens and they have been reimbursed so that's all good that's news and good it. to hear good so if we've um, got the precedent set which I thought we had if you have any problems then come to us the reason I'm saying talk to them first is it just seems to be a, a nicer process CCGs feel a little bit more um, in control, shall we say. Um, we also know some CCGs haven't paid anything out yet because they're still waiting for the Treasury information. We also know quite a few have paid out because they recognise there's a cash flow issue. So again, if, if there's anything like that, do come to us, come, come to which one of us um, looks after your area and we'll take it up with the appropriate CCG. And I think that's everything for today, unless anybody's got anything else. Um, I'm just going to mention next week, next week, Wednesday, the 24th of June, that's a clinical webinar, not the usual practice manager webinar. Um, everybody, of course, is welcome to join um, and, and come and um, participate in that webinar. Um, and I understand the link will be sent out. Um, but otherwise, Carol, anything else from you before we leave today? The only thing I'd like to remind you that we've got a recruitment event uh, again on the 9th of July. Um, it is filling up. Um, we have got quite a good number of trainees and doctors that have signed up to, to come on it. So if as a practice you want to uh, attract candidates, um, applicants for, for roles, then, you know, it's, it's for GPs, um, then please sign up for it. Um, it's it's on, our, uh, on our website, just go into um, events and things and it'll be on there somewhere, I'll stick in recruitment and you'll find it. 
Um, the other thing is just prior notice. We're not going to cancel it in your diaries yet because apparently it causes all sorts of havoc. Um, so as Dawn mentioned, next week, the 24th of June, is a clinical um, webinar with Nigel and some panellists. Um, by all means, you're invited, obviously. Um, but he's also going to be doing another one on the 22nd of July, um, which again is a Wednesday. So we won't be doing a PM webinar that particular day. It'll show in your diaries at the moment as a PM. We will convert it to a, a clinical one, but a bit nearer the time, I hope. So 24th of June, 22nd of July, those are the 2pm webinars which will be converted to clinical. Otherwise, we'll see you next week or week after, whenever it is. Yes, week after. Lovely. So thank you everybody for joining us today. And if I can say thank you very much to my colleagues, that's Carol Cusack, Michelle Lombardi, Helene Irvine and Chazelle Thornton um, for looking after me while I stood in for Louise today to present. And we look forward to seeing you all again very soon and take care. Thank you. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.